Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. UNICEF Executive Director Henrietta Four joins the Post to talk about the impact of the pandemic on the world's children. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steedsell as a senior writer with the Washington Post. My guest today is UNICEF's Executive Director Henrietta Four. The pandemic has vastly complicated the agency's mission of meeting children's basic needs, including education. UNICEF is also the world's largest buyer of vaccines and a key player in the effort to vaccinate the world. Henrietta, for a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much, Francis. A pleasure to be here. Well, I'd like to start by talking about the impact on the world's children and particularly on education. UNICEF has talked about an emerging crisis in education. How did we get here and what do we need to do? Well, it's a very good question because I think it's one that the world has been wrestling with for some time. We've had a global education crisis uh, in a number of parts of the world and we just haven't addressed it. So children have been going to school, they've been sitting on a school bench, they've been sitting in front of a desk, but they haven't actually been learning. When you look at the World Bank numbers, uh, children by the age of 10 are not able to read and comprehend a paragraph. It's just not good enough as the world. So we entered the pandemic already with a crisis on our hands, one that was not well addressed. But now with the pandemic, we have a much bigger crisis, Francis. We have 168 million children who have not been in school for the past year. And we are very worried that a lot of children will not be coming back into school. And some of that is because their families have lost income and they're not able to pay the school fees. We're particularly worried about girls. Uh, two boys could return to a classroom, but only one girl. And that would be tragic for our world. So in many ways, our indicators on education are going backwards. And it's been a crisis that's been brewing for a long time. But I think now we really have it in front of us. We can all see it with our own children in our own communities. And we have to do something about it as the world. Can you tell me specifically some of the steps you'd like to see? I, I know some of these are sort of mental health problems as well as um, educational learning problems. And you also refer to this division between boys and girls opportunities. What should we be doing? What steps can we take? Well, one area that we have identified that we think could really help level the, the world is connectivity. So if we could connect every school in the world to the internet, wouldn't that be a better world? It means that every child would have a chance to access education. This means that we will have to have hybrid solutions, so ways that children can do remote learning. But this will not be so difficult with today's technologies. There are so many lower satellites that are going up. 
there are Wi-Fi connections. We could connect every school. And if we could connect a school, it becomes a center of learning, a place where parents, as well as children, honor it. They realize the importance of an education, that it is the best ladder out of poverty that any of us know, and that it is a place where the community can gather around and get the benefits of connectivity. So whether it's for agricultural produce or whether it is for uh, primary health care supplies for hospitals, whatever the need, connectivity will help it. So I think we could, in the next three, four years, connect every school in the world to the internet. If we set it as one of those big moonshot ideas that was possible now because of technology. So that would be one. A second one that we can see that's very important is we need to get children back into school. So schools should be the first to open and they should be the last to close as we are thinking about lockdowns. There are more than 168 million children who've been out of school this past year. And all of us will bear the responsibility to make sure that there is catch-up education for these students. As you know, Francis, there are lots of teachers that are also out of school because they're home looking after their children, being in the community. So they are struggling to look after their homes, be parents, but then also be a teacher, be in their family and in their community. And this is a uh, big responsibility. It's one that's made harder in the time of COVID. And it is one that is, um, uh, it's a challenge in many, many ways. Remote learning is something that we are just beginning to understand as a world. I think we will learn how to learn remotely. We will learn the importance of artificial intelligence, of uh, the many routes of learning. So it could be by radio, by television, uh, it can be by cell phone, it can be by tablet, but we have to be able to learn in high-tech, low-tech, and no-tech uh, environments around our world. So you speak very compellingly about the needs to connect people to the internet, but who will drive these connectivity challenges? Is this a government or a private sector uh, obligation? And how do you see it going ahead? So Francis, you're right. It is the government where it starts because these are national education programs, national curricula. But the private sector has an enormous role to play here and they are the enablers and they are the ones who will make it sustainable. So it is public private partnerships. It's very similar to the vaccines. Uh, it is the development of education programs that can be accessible to all that are placed on national platforms and are available to teachers and schools. So let me give you an example in Timor-Leste. The national government came to us and said, we really would like to have a national platform to be able to offer our national curriculum to students everywhere. So with uh, Microsoft and with the University of Cambridge, we had developed uh, something called the Learning Passport. It was originally um, created for, for refugees so that they could access their national curriculum wherever they were in their home language and they could keep up on their studies. So we rolled this out in Timor-Leste. Every school, every student 
could have access to the national curriculum. It is those kinds of initiatives that you realize that you can use the national government, but you also need your private companies involved and you need everyone to gather around it and realize that these are new learning tools. We did not know how much we needed them until COVID-19 hit, but Francis, now we realize that connectivity is just not a nice to have, it is a must have for the world of education. It's also that there are other um, facilities that we can use. Television is used throughout South Asia and much in the Southeast Asia and Middle East countries as a form of education. This is very important, but when you look at the divide between rural and urban families, a rural family, let's say in Chad, one out of a hundred would have a television. In an urban center in Chad, it would be one out of three. So you have such a disparity that you need some other tools. Radios are another good one, but not everyone has a radio, or if there is one radio in the family, then maybe it isn't every child that gets to be on the radio for their class. And if you are a family that only has one cell phone, your father has to use it, your mother has to use it, your older brother, and you're the youngest girl, you're probably not able to access your school curriculum and your lesson plans online. So the availability of devices will be a very important addition that the private sector can put in, as well as the connectivity. You know, if you can download uh, educational materials at zero rating, it means it's affordable and accessible to everyone, whether you're a teacher or a school or a student, and that will make a big difference. So public and private both have very big roles to play, but we could come out of COVID stronger in the education sector in both quality and quantity of children reached if we really created this as a, as a mission that we as a world would solve for young people, for this next generation. Of course, some of these problems exist in this country and in, in the developing, developed world, wealthy Western countries have huge inequities in connectivity. But take me into some of the conflict zones you've talked about and play out some of the problems there for education. I know that you addressed the Security Council this week about Syria. Yes, so Francis, it is different in the countries that are in conflict and in these fragile um, countries. So let me give you a statistic that um, says it all in one, in one statistic. The Democratic Republic of Congo, the number of students that can access remote education, 2%. It's so small that you realize it's not something that you can count on. In Syria, uh, we were talking in the National Security Council about the fact that we are now 10 years on in this conflict. And what has happened is that many children have either fled with their families uh, to neighboring countries, some uh, in Arabic language countries, others in countries with new and different uh, languages, um, Greek, German, and they are having to adapt to these countries and to their curriculums. And yet they want to return to Syria and thus how do you keep them both connected to their national curriculum and learning these new curriculum because children need 
an environment. They need an ecosystem at school so that they have friends and teachers and a sense of belonging and place. And that means that they have to learn the local languages and customs and curriculum and keep up with their classmates. So language lessons and the ability to translate languages, the ability to let curriculums cross borders is a very important part for Syrian children. But there are also Syrian children that are internally displaced. They have fled out of one part of the country into another part of the country. They are new to a community. They are not socially integrated. And schools can be places for social integration, for where communities come together so that they have a sense of identity and a sense of um, accomplishing solutions together. And in these communities, some of the children who are arriving do not have um, education in the last two or three years, some five years, some six years. And so they're going to have to catch up. So we've developed some curriculums that are uh, remedial. They are accelerated curriculums. You know, if you're 16 years old, you do not want to go back to be with 10 year olds in class. But with these catch up uh, curriculums, you can learn more quickly and you can catch up with your age mates. That's also a very important part for how young people see themselves, um, which goes to your point on mental health. It's, it's, it's very difficult in places of conflict because education is essential and yet it's been disrupted and there are many factors in which we have to reinstate them or weave them together differently so that children and young people can learn. So over the past year, we've learned a lot about how the virus behaves and infectivity rates and things like that. What have you learned about the data on the loss of learning as opposed to the risk of infection? And what sort of precautions do schools need to take as they prepare to reopen? So we've been doing studies and so have many of our colleagues in the, our world. and. What we are finding is that in just four weeks or six weeks, children can forget months of learning. And for those of us who had summer vacations, we know what this is like. You forget a lot when you are out of school. So it is essential that we try to keep the schools open. And to do so, to your point, it is to keep them open safely. And there are lots of good practices. Uh, we are seeing them all over the world and we are learning from each other. So some are that schools are opening with the ability to have desks six feet apart or three feet apart. Some others have a bubble system in which uh, the students of that class only come to school at certain days. They stay with their classmates and they head homeward again so that they stay in a safe bubble of health. And that allows that class to move through primary school or secondary school. There are others who are having classes outdoors. And if you are outdoors, there seems to be more space for them to spread out. But it's also important that there be time for play. So they have organized the ability to have play and learning at the same time outdoors. But there are many ways to do it. 
keeping teachers safe. We are advocating that along with frontline healthcare workers, the teachers are at the front of the line for vaccinations. It's extremely important that the teachers also feel safe in these environments and that the children are learning. And then Francis, at some point, we should come back to your comment on mental health because that is part of what is happening in COVID that we do not really have the data for yet. That's fascinating. I want to take you to one encouraging piece of news we learned this morning. Until now, we've had no effective or tested uh, vaccine for children, but Pfizer announced this morning that its vaccine was 100% effective in young teenagers. What does this mean for you um, going ahead? It seems like an, a potentially an enormous step forward. Francis, it is, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is very good news. And so uh, Pfizer's data that it is safe and 100% effective for children 12 and over is great news. We now have a number of manufacturers who are testing their vaccines on children. And as soon as these trials are over, we are hoping the vaccines might be available for children when schools open in September in the Northern Hemisphere. And it will be important for children. It will be important for families, for parents who worry that their children may not be safe going back to school. A vaccine will give them that sense of comfort. So this is a this is a very, very good piece of news. Well, I want to ask you a little bit now about um, UNICEF's role in this enormous, ambitious uh, vaccine rollout around the world. And maybe you could start by by telling us a little about who the players are and where UNICEF fits. I know there are a lot of acronyms here, so um, you'll be addressing a lay audience as well as a specialized one, but just give us a rundown of where UNICEF fits in COVAX and what's happening going ahead. Uh, so thank you, Francis. Yes, we are deeply involved. So um, there is something called the COVAX facility, and this is the facility that has been put together um, under the auspices of a number of organizations to try to uh, buy and deliver and train uh, people in countries to actually get vaccines out to the world. And so the members of this COVAX facility are WHO, the World Health Organization, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, CEPI, who is the organization that has done much of the research and development, the Gates Foundation, and UNICEF. And so each one of us have our roles in the COVAX facility. And in our roles, we are doing um, vaccine procurement. We do it from the public and private um, sectors, but most of the manufacturers are private corporations but they live within their own um, uh, countries and thus they have certain regulations. So WHO will approve the vaccines. We then are able to buy them with advanced purchase commitments. We are able to move them into the countries with the help of many private sector players. Um, the World Economic Forum has been great about gathering a group of private logistics, airline companies, transport companies, we need all of them to get vaccines out to 100 places in the world and every week if possible. So um, uh, we get them out to the countries. We then help the countries to develop national plans. We've been doing this with the World Bank. 
so that they can train their people, that they can have good cold chains. And a cold chain means that you have refrigerators at the right places along the cold chain supply chain so that vaccines can stay at the temperature that they need to stay so that they will be um, safe and effective. And so we have 70,000 refrigerators that have gone out. We have many of them that are solar powered so that when you're in a rural situation, you will still have your um, refrigerator operating for the vaccines. And then we also work with the national governments to talk about vaccines and how important they are, that vaccines can keep you safe. There is, as you know, Francis, vaccine hesitancy because people have questions, very understandable, about whether or not vaccines would be safe if they should give them to themselves, their children. You know, when could they get one? Um, and, and do they have any underlying conditions? Well, we have been uh, clear that vaccines are your best defense against COVID-19. There will be many variants coming out. And the sooner you can get vaccinated, that is the best. So. We're hoping that in every country we can get through the vaccine hesitancy, that much of the misinformation that you see online, that that can be overcome, that people will trust uh, the sites and the government for talking about what are trustworthy vaccines. But this consortium of COVAX is the one that's at work. We have a priority list of countries in which we are going to the neediest first, and we are first reaching out to the frontline healthcare workers, the doctors and nurses who need to be protected. They are number one on all of our lists. So uh, we hope to get enough vaccines into the COVAX Alliance that we can meet the needs in the 82 low-income countries and low-middle-income countries. These are the most important. But uh, Francis, it's building on a system that's already there because you might say to yourself, well, why UNICEF? Why are you involved? Well, UNICEF has been moving every year 2 billion vaccines out to the world. We service about 100 countries. We do the buying and the delivery and the helping of the vaccinations in country because children under the age of five have a number of routine immunizations that they need for measles, for polio, and other things. And we, we already have this system and cold chains that we have worked on uh, for years. So we're building on an existing system. With COVID-19, we are now buying another 2 billion vaccines. This is for 2021. And with this goes syringes and the safety boxes in which you put the spent syringes. It goes with personal protective equipment, all of the things that you need in a primary health care clinic. So treatments and um, diagnostics, test kits, very important. So UNICEF does this purchasing and getting it out into the countries. This enormous commitment to COVID-19 is clearly very, very important. But what has it done to your ability to deliver measles and other and polio vaccines, as you mentioned? Is there a setback? Uh, and are we worrying about measles outbreaks in years to come? Yes, we're worried about both. Absolutely. So measles is contagious and um, we have to be sure that we have routine immunizations. In most countries around the world, there has been a drop off in their 
campaigns for measles, polio, and other very important vaccines. And it's because of a couple of factors. One is that for some countries, they have repurposed the people who have been working on polio to now move them into COVID vaccinations. This is important, but they also need to return to polio. But it's also because families have been uh, worried about leaving their homes. And as a result, they have not gone down to their primary health clinic. They have not brought their children in for their routine vaccinations. So uh, we need to be sure that we are sending the message that routine immunizations are available, that they are in the primary health care centers, that you need to bring your children in. And then uh, lastly, the third area that's very much affected is transportation systems have been disrupted. And so for many of the poorest in the countries, they are unable to reach the primary health care clinics. Uh, they are far apart. There is no public transportation to get them there. And on foot, it is really, really a long way. So we need to try to bring all of that back so that we can have routine immunizations and that we can continue campaigns like polio, which has superb backing from Rotary International, from the Gates Foundation, from WHO, from Gavi, and from UNICEF. So in the United States, we've been reaping the benefits of two uh, very quickly delivered vaccines and now a third, but uh, the Pfizer and Moderna, two shot vaccines, both need cold chain. When you're talking about the challenges of vaccinating the rest of the world, what would be the benefits and what would be the timeline of a vaccine that could be single shot doesn't need cold chain and is less labile than the vaccines we've been talking about? Uh, enormous uh, possibilities, and it's a great benefit. Uh, it is difficult for people uh, to return to a primary health care clinic to get a second shot in many of the developing countries. So a single shot from a primary health care uh, perspective or a public health perspective is enormously powerful. And when we are able to have vaccines for children also, that will be very powerful and it will be another reason for families to come in and to vaccinate both for routine immunizations as well as for COVID so the children can return to school. What is the role of the US in, in ensuring there are vaccines for the rest of the world and that they're distributed equitably? Well, this um, gathering that is coming up April 15th that is talking about the advanced purchase commitment will be very important. The United States is leading that. The United States also has the manufacturers. So the more that the manufacturers can prioritize COVAX will be powerful and important for the system because we right now have 54 countries that are waiting for vaccines. Uh, we need 50 million vaccines in April. And uh, without those manufacturers, we cannot meet that goal. We could also use uh, donations from countries like the United States when they feel comfortable. Uh, can they share them with the developing world? Uh, as we know, if not everyone is safe, no one is safe. And you can see that we have some neighbors who are in uh, greater need than ourselves. And so the more that we can share as um, the United States, that will be a powerful message, both of American values, but of American know-how and what we have to offer to the world. Just to follow on that, the WHO has pushed for a waiver on some intellectual property rights on vaccines. Is that something you support? Would that make a difference to you? 
So intellectual property is important for private companies, and there are lots of ways to deal with this. So there are technology transfers, there are technology cooperation agreements, there are partnerships. There are lots of ways to protect intellectual property and yet to share the vaccines. Right now, we need manufacturing capacity. So any of the companies that can help with sharing some part of their intellectual property and allowing greater manufacturing capacity all over the globe would be very important and powerful. Uh, there are a number of laboratories and companies in Africa and in Asia and in the Middle East that are wanting to step up and help. Henrietta, I can think of almost no greater burdens than the two you have on your shoulders of the, the needs of the world's children and also this huge vaccination campaign. As my last question, what keeps you up at night and what do you feel most hopeful about? So might I go back to mental health? I right. think mental health is a shadow pandemic that we really don't understand yet. We have never done enough research in mental health as a world. Um, we do not really understand how it affects children or adolescents. And for us, we can see that there's a very strong effect of being out of school and being at home. Many children are experiencing a time in their lives that they have never had. School for many is an outlet. It's a place of safety. It's where they have their friends. They have someone they can talk to. In many homes, there is much more violence, physical violence, sexual violence, and now online violence. So how children deal with that, how they can be educated to keep themselves and their friends safe is a massive challenge. It's one that the world hasn't really addressed. As adults, we can see that our mental health and that of our coworkers and friends and family is affected, but it's even stronger for children and particularly for adolescents. So that keeps me up at night. And Francis, we could use more help and fundraising for mental health. And what gives me hope? Oh, it's the young people. They're filled with dreams and excitement and they see a world that's better and stronger. And that's the world we can deliver to them. So. It's a wonderful time to come out of COVID stronger and let's go change the world, Francis. Change the world. That's a wonderful message to finish on. Henrietta Four, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was enlightening and sobering at the same time. That's all we have time for, but at 3 p.m. this afternoon, my colleague Anne Hornaday will be back with the creative minds behind the Oscar-nominated film Crip Camp. A Disability Revolution. Please join us 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern. Thank you very much for joining Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.